How would you like to be required to do something in this lifetime and then attempt to do it and find out that you didn't have the authority to do it? Would that be frustrating? I don't believe God would ever put us in that dilemma. I'd like you to take your Bibles, and we're going to look at the authority and the power of the believer. If you would turn to Luke chapter 9. Now, what we're looking at here is the training of the 12 and later the training of the 70. This is in preparation for the age that's to come. So Luke chapter 9, verse 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now, what was the authority and the power for? It was to be over what? Demons. Now, they clearly understood that. In fact, I'll just challenge you sometime to take that passage and cross-reference it and look around and notice the linkage between preaching, authority, and casting out demons. Boy, they were closely related throughout the gospel accounts. Now, move over a chapter or so, chapter 10 and verse 17. Now what we're seeing is the 70 are being sent out. God's included his training program now to include 70, and they come back. And what astonished them more than anything else, in verse 17... And the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Even the demons. That amazed them. But they knew that. They were spiritually in tune enough to realize what the enemy was here. And they would come back. They were amazed. Can you imagine that? Even they're subject to us. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall injure you. Now, if you've got an old King James here, it's interesting because it doesn't differentiate in that verse between power and authority, but there's two different words here. Now, let's make a distinction here, if we can, between power and authority. Authority is the right to rule. It's a positional issue. It's based in your position. A parent has authority over his children because... It's, it's a position that they occupy. Ruling governments have authority over people because it's a position that they have. Power, on the other hand, is the ability to rule. Now, let me illustrate. Here's a policeman. He's a rookie cop. Comes right out of the academy, and he's going to go out and direct traffic. And he's told, you can go out in the middle of that intersection. There's four lanes going everywhere. And you stop the traffic. Because he has power to do it? No. But he has the authority. And our government grants that to him. So he can walk out in that intersection, hold up his hand, blow the whistle, and stop the traffic. But he doesn't have the power to do it. Now, come the middle of the night or so, take a huge, great, big old cement block and put it in the middle of that intersection. Does it have the authority? No, but it has the power to stop. And when it comes to the spiritual realm, guess what you have? You have both power and authority. Both the right as well as the ability to do this. Now, I've got to establish that confidence for you because it's very critical that we understand that. But when the word submission appears, it's a military term Huptasso means to arrange under. So it's a positional issue that we're talking about here. 
Now let me explain that in, in a more complete sense here. Because when we talk about how the church functions today and how we relate to one another, that uh, authority is a very, very important concept. When I have a, a child who, who I tell go mow the lawn, and he says, why do I have to mow the lawn? I resist the temptation to answer that question. Because the answer right then is rather clear. Because I told you to. So I believe I also have kind of an obligation to sit down and tell him afterwards. Because if I exercise some authority here and have a rule in that area and have a rule that I expect him to follow, it needs to be a justifiable rule. It can't be just because I didn't want to and I wanted you to. Because I'm the father and I had other things to do and you've got to learn to be a responsible person and mow the lawn like I had to learn when I was a child. You know, something like that. Now, when the Bible talks about the fact that you shall not rule over them as the Gentiles do, but you shall prove yourself to be a servant or a slave. Now, what is characteristic about a servant or a slave is that they have no power or authority at all. There is nobody lower in terms of position in the world than a servant or a slave. So what is the Lord saying here? Is there a different understanding in terms of the way that we relate to each other as far as authority is concerned. Well, at the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, you find these words at the end of it. This man speaks to us as one who has authority, not as our scribes. Now, did he have some positional authority there? Not really. Not really. He wasn't even a Levite. That wasn't the tribe of which he came from. And it was apparent that even God had not extended to him at that time, in a general sense, that authority, because not until you come to Matthew 28 does he ever say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and upon this earth. Now that's a positional issue. What I'm getting at here in terms of our leadership amongst each other, when God gives instruction to leaders in the church, he says, base your authority in the quality of the conduct and the character of your life which was evident in Jesus, that's why they could say to him, this man speaks to us as one who has authority. And what are the requirements then for elders? It's all character. It's all the basis of, a, of the quality and the conduct and the character of your life. But that's the instructions, you see, not to be a servant or a slave. What am I a servant to? I'm subject to the needs of those people underneath me. That's what we're subject to. I may be the head of my home, and I have a right to rule there, but what I'm subject to is the needs of everybody underneath me. Now, anybody in a leadership position knows how true that is. So what I'm subject to is not the orders of my children, but the needs of my children. Now, whenever he talks about those people in that leadership position, he says, make sure it's on the basis of the quality and the conduct and the character of your life. However, what does he say to all of those who are underneath those positions? It's purely position. Does it say, children, obey your parents if they're doing a good job? Does it say, church member, obey your church leaders if they're doing a good job? No. There is no if clause there whatsoever. All based on position. You do it because they're your parents. You do it because she's your master. You do it because it's the governing bodies here. See, that, that's authority. That's authority. But there's also the concept of power. Now, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1.
You see, the moment that I, I try to exert that or demand that, that authority or headship kind of a thing, can you imagine what would happen to my leadership if I said, listen, wife, you do that because I told you to in the head of, your, of you. That would probably be the end of my leadership right there. She'd look at me and say, you're probably the head, but I'm the neck that runs it. You know, I know my leadership broke down there because it needs to be a leadership of love. And sometimes it's no more than asking in that particular area. But, but again, I'd have to get back to what we were explaining earlier. That is not a right for me to demand. That's a responsibility. Whether or not my wife is submissive to me is between her and God. God's going to hold her accountable to that. Now look what happens here in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me just hammer something home again, because it's worth it. Chapter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How? In Christ. Just as he chose us. How? In him. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Verse 7. In him we have redemption. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed. How? In him. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things. How? In Christ. Things in the heavens and things upon the earth. Say it. In him also we have an obtained an inheritance. Verse 10, 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope. Where is our hope? It's in Christ. Verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed how? In him. Get the point? Everything that we have is because we are in him. Now, I'll tell you, when I see something as redundant as that, somebody has said in six chapters of Ephesians, there are 40 references to you being in Christ or Christ in you. And for every verse of God being in you, there are 10 verses of you being in Christ. Boy, how could we miss this? Now look what happens. Verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believed. Our problem here is that we are not in Christ. We don't see it. We don't know what the greatness is here. There has to be a transformation of our minds to fully understand this. And Paul says, I pray that your eyes would be open to this, to know this. The more we know it, the more we're going to experience not only that freedom, but the fruitfulness in our lives. In verse 19, he says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then it goes on and talks about the working and the strength and his might. There are about only four Greek words that I know of. And they're all in this one verse trying to express to us the power that is here. It's here. Right now. Behind the fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ lay the mightiest workings recorded in the work of God. Took four words to try to express it to us here. 
What's the scope of this? What's the extent of it? Read on. Which he raised, when he raised him, Christ, from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name, that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Holy cow. Think about that for a moment. I mean, you know, we've got to have our eyes open to see that. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. Whatever name you name. He's bigger than the Ayatollah Khomeini. And Gaddafi. And Adolf Hitler. And Buddha. And your mother-in-law. He's bigger than every name you can name. Every name. Far above that. Not only far above that, not only in, in that age, but in the age to come. You see what our problem is? We don't see that. But you've got to believe that. You have to believe that. He even goes on to say, in reference to the church, he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. You take the least member of the body of Christ, the lowest one, his feet, is far above. Is far above. Let me tell you what's happened to people in this kind of a conflict. In their experience, in their worldview, they see, boy, big old bad Satan over here, and dear old loving God over here, and poor little me caught between two equal and opposite powers. If that's your perception, I promise you, you are defeated. Because you know what the Bible's trying to tell us? That God is off the charts. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipotent in all of his ways, and loving and kind. Satan's a defeated foe, and I'm in him. That's what he's trying to say. If you've got a Zoroasterism, dualism kind of a concept here, two equal and opposite powers, no wonder you feel defeated. But people in their experience sense that. They feel that way. I'm so powerless against this thing. And it's because of a faulty belief system, partly. And what he's trying to tell us here, I pray that your eyes would be opened up. Now, notice how he confers that, the conferring of that. This power that's been extended to you, who believe, right? Towards us who believe, verse 19. Now let me get technical, just for a moment or so here. This is one of the most fascinating passages in all of the Bible, for one reason, that from about verse 19 through chapter 2, verse 5, there are no verbs. This is one of the longest sentences you'll ever read. Uh, I realize it doesn't show up that way in your translation here, but it starts in verse 20 when it says, which he brought about. And then you have a whole parenthetical insertion there, which refers back when, and it talks about the whole historical thing that Christ has done. And then it kind of picks up in chapter 2, verse 1, and you, it should read, being dead or having been dead in your trespasses and sin. It's actually a participle there. But now it talks about you, and then here is another whole parenthetical insertion about your former manner of life. Now, if you pull out the insertions here for a moment, it'll read something like this. The power that's been extended towards you who believe, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ and you now, and then refers to a whole section of what you used to be like. Now I'll jump down to verse 5. You were made alive 
technical. Aorist active indicative, which simply means that it is a past tense point in time. That's already happened. You were past tense. You are not being made alive. You were made alive at one point in time before where you're at right now. Together with Christ, by grace, have you been saved completely in past times now with the present result that you're in a state of salvation which persists through this present time. You were made alive with Christ. The idea of it's a continuing, ongoing thing. And now you're raised up with him. There's your aorist active indicative again, which means that there was not only a point in time when you were made alive, there was a point in time in the past when you were raised up with Christ. So where are you now? You're seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Right now. Right now. Not just positionally, actually. Right now. And the whole concept of the spiritual world, that's who you are and that's where you exist. Note here now. The same verb which expressed the reviving or quickening of Christ, in verse 20, expresses the reviving of his people. The act of God which raised the Lord from the dead raised also the body. Head and body are naturally raised together. In Romans 6, which we looked at in the last session, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus are shown to also include his people. The death to sin of the believer with the crucified Christ and the consequent annulling of the power of sin over him through the impartation of the life of the resurrected Christ is shown in Romans. And now Ephesians 2 lists the believer with the ascended Christ to the heavenlies where he's made a partaker of Christ's throne right now. Oh, I'll tell you what, don't let me get theological on you here. <laughs> let me just try to tell you, you know, the nugget of what we're talking about here. Our problem is we do not fully perceive what this power is that's been extended towards us who believe. Of which the scope is, is far above every other name you can name, every prince of power of the air, every name, human or divine. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. Because you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies right now. Because that's already happened, past tense, for every child of God. Because you're in Christ. What's true about him, what's true about yourself. Let me look at Colossians chapter 2, just to confirm this in another letter. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2. We've already read that section where we're not to be caught up with empty deceptions and vain philosophies according to the traditions of the world. But now verse 9 says, For in him, verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, verse 10, and what? In him you have been made complete. How do you do that? You don't do that. It's past tense, isn't it? I don't feel very complete. Rain on your feelings. This is a belief issue. This is true. We can only believe this thing. And you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. You know what happened to Satan, verse 15? When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Well, my goodness, if that's true... How come we're not experiencing an awful lot more victory in this world today? Satan roars around like a hungry lion, seeking for someone to devour. 
Well, I'm here to tell you the fangs have been removed. And buddy, what he's doing, he's gumming people to death. <laughs> If I tell you, if we're blinded to what the due nature of the battle is, you're going to have a hard time fighting it. You're going to have a hard, hard time fighting it. Well, what's the location of authority? The right hand of the throne of God is the center of power of the whole universe, and the exercising of the power of the throne was committed unto the ascended Lord. The elevation of his people with him to the heavenlies means that they are made sharers potentially for the present, of the authority which is his, they are made to sit with him and share his throne. That is, we're joint heirs. To share a throne means to partake of the authority which it represents. Now, we'll look at some limits to that authority a little bit later. What's the purpose of all of this for us? Well, Ephesians chapter 3. Let's start at verse 8. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. It says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light, which is the administration of the mystery. Mystery is not mysterious. It means something that was previously not yet revealed, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, that's through you and me, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly purpose in places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So everything God carried out through Christ, raising the church with him in the heavenlies, is to demonstrate through the church. To who? Those rulers and authorities. How are we doing? We're still sitting here saying, what rulers and authorities? Holy cow. How are we going to get our job done that way? How are we going to really, as a church, be the church that God called us to be when God intends to work this out through the church? We're sitting there, oh, God, help me do something. Well, I've done all I have to do. Now open our eyes, dear God, and let us see what the true nature of the battle is out there. And let's be victorious for a change in Christ. Because God intends for the church to be worked through in such a way that the rulers and the authorities of all the universe, those principalities and powers that we're wrestling against out here, the church is going to stand triumph over that. How are we doing? Well, we're out here saying, you got a psychological problem here. You're right. You're not thinking truth. That's your psychological problem. And you're allowing your feelings that got stuck on 9 or 10 a long time ago to be your walk by faith. And that's, that's our psychological problem. Let's look at this rebel hole of authority. You see, in the original creation here, God created man <clears throat> to rule over all the birds of the skies and beasts of the fields and the fish of the sea. When man forfeited that position that he had with God at that time, who became the rebel holder of authority? The God of this world. The prince of power of the air. Satan did. But he didn't have it originally. Man did. 
And we are told in John chapter 12, verse 31, it says, Now judgment is upon this world because the ruler of this world shall be cast out. It wasn't yet, <clears throat> but Scripture clearly asserts he is the ruler of this world. Is he ruler of you? There's a difference between being a ruler of the world and ruler of me. Now, I, I live down here physically, but my citizenship is in heaven. And as long as I'm stuck down here where the ruler is of this world is Satan, and the God of this world, the prince of power of the air, I better have some kind of protection while I live here. Has God provided that? Absolutely. It says in John chapter 14, verse 30, the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. You see, the necessity of Jesus being sinless was the fact that that ruler had absolutely nothing in Jesus. He tried everything he could within his power to tempt Jesus to sin, but although he was tempted in every way as man, he never sinned. Does he have something in you? That's the question, maybe. Let me look at uh, John chapter 14 with you. <clears throat> John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, verse 27. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave my, me commandment, even so I do, arise, let us go from here. Boy, there's a sense of confidence in the Lord's will. He knows what's going to come to pass here. He knows good and well. Now turn over to chapter 16. Verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. His fate is sealed. Boy, he knows it, incidentally. But when the spirit of truth comes, you see, what's the answer out of this? The spirit of truth. Who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. When he comes, what will he do? He'll guide you into all truth. Because Satan is first and foremost a deceiver. And he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak to you. And he'll glorify me. He will take the works of Christ and make that known. So it means to glorify, make it known, manifest it. Turn with me to Ephesians again, chapter 6. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We had a chapel speaker about a year or so ago 
the missionary from Argentina. They're having a tremendous growth of the church down there. It would parallel probably any great time in, in church history. It's unbelievable. Churches that were 50 and 60 and struggling for years, struggling for years, are now three and four and five hundred and five and ten thousand. It's in, unbelievable. David Hawking from this church went down about two years ago, came back so excited. He said, if I could find ten Spanish-speaking pastors, I'd go back right now. He said, it's like picking candy off the street. It's unbelievable. Well, this particular missionary said, you know, for so long now, he said, we have been polarized into two camps, those who are strong in the Lord, evangelicals, and in the strength of his might, Pentecostals. He said, it's not an either-or, folks. It's a both-and. We need to know who we are in Christ, but we also need to realize that there has been the power here of God to accomplish his work that God has given to us. And so we need to open our eyes to the reality of that. He said, down here in Argentina, when for years we thought our enemy is this corrupt political regime down here, instead of the powers behind that. And so we're trying to undo political problems instead of praying against the principalities and powers. When we began to do that, we started to see things happen. He said evangelism up until that time was standing outside the prison and seeing a prisoner inside and telling them how great life is out here. And from his perspective, he's saying, open the gates and do something about the guard and the tower and I'll be happy to come out. So what we started to do was to go into the little hamlets and the villages. Instead of sending evangelists in, we sent prayer teams in. And they went in and they bound the enemy. And then we went in and shared the gospel. We did something about the blinding first. If this, the unbeliever is blinded, you better deal with that first. Then share your truth and your gospel. It's incredible what's happening down there. Let's bring them together here if we can. So many times you see people have read this. There are still evangelicals even out there. Well, the rulers and powers are structures of existence. No, they're not. They're clearly identified here in Ephesians as being in the heavenlies. That's the spiritual realm. See, people struggle at this point right now because they can entertain very easily the concept of, of Satan. Even the most ranked liberals at times, ah, Satan. All they just talk about as a buzzword and blame him for little things that go on wrong today. You start talking about demons and people go, whoa, man, you know, I don't buy that stuff. Well, wait a minute. Come on, people. Satan's a created being. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. How do you think he carries out that worldwide ministry today? He does it through principalities and powers and dominions and rulers. We'll look a little later on at some of the actual allocation of that. But that's the nature of the world of which we live in today. You see, the church has always believed it used to be part of our confession of faith that we believe in a personal devil that doesn't mean I got one personally it means he has a personality he's not a force there are little thinking beings out there <clears throat> and you read somebody like uh, M. Scott Peck's book People of the Lie which is profound only in one sense that here's a well-known psychiatrist admitting the presence of evil but outside of that it isn't worth reading He claims he came face to face with Satan. I could tell you as many horror stories as he has in that book and more. 
But I know it wasn't Satan directly. There are some real strongholds that exist out here without question. But I have to get back again to understand here the extent of our authority and what its limitations are. First of all, let me talk for a moment, if I can, about what are our qualifications to this. Is this a carte blanche thing? If so, why is it being demonstrated far more? Number one, he says, that you would know the power that's been extended towards us who believe. I'd like to suggest to you that belief is a criteria here. It's like that rookie cop who goes out in, into that intersection. Now, he believes that that traffic will stop when he holds up his hand and blows the whistle. Kind of. You know what I mean? I would think that, that the first time that you step out into that intersection, it would be kind of like, oh my gosh, I hope they stop. And by golly, it would be kind of like this here. Can you imagine an, an old seasoned cop doing that? You, just, you can just watch them and what they do. They walk out there and hold up their hand. Boy, they stop. And, and, and there's a sense of growing confidence there. But it is conditioned by our belief. If you don't believe you have that authority, you're not going to exercise it. And you may sit on that intersection and are you sure what they said back in the academy is true? What if they don't stop? I'll tell you what, if you don't think they will stop, You'll probably turn in your badge in a hurry. Or look for some other assignment than traffic. Wouldn't you? Believe. Be it done to you according to you, your belief or what you believe. Now you have to believe that. Here's a telephone call I got one night. This youth pastor <clears throat> was over to this home and they ran into a little bit of a bus car. <laughs> Mom and dad were bullying, and uh, the children were home alone, three children. And the major problem was that middle child, a boy, uh, had all kinds of problems. And it was just bringing that into the home. Well, one of the rooms felt 20 degrees colder. I mean, it was, you could, you could sense it apparently. I wasn't there. So they called me and they said, boy, you can't believe what's going on over here. Can you help us out? Well, the assistant to the youth pastor got over there, knew something was wrong, so he said out loud, all right, I know you're here. If you're here, show yourself. And a picture turned 90 degrees on the wall. I said, if you ever do something like that, you ought to have a follow-up statement. It was kind of like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when they called me. I went to their home the next evening. We sat down as a family, and we went uh, and prayed together. And literally, as a family, as the head of the home, the father took authority over that house. And for two days there was nothing. Then one night, it was like a testing time. The youngest in their family, a little girl, woke up in the middle of the night kind of terrorized. And she saw under the doorway just a brilliant light. It scared the socks off of her. <laughs> and she was afraid to go out and see her mother and mom and dad, the authority figures in her life at that time, were across the hall. And finally she said, I'm going to go anyway. And so she opened the door. As soon as the door was opened up, guess what happened to the light? gone, just like that. It was her way of expressing her will to take authority over it. And as soon as she did that, the power was broken. It was gone. As soon as I didn't let that control me, she went right in, across the hall into the room. And it was over immediately. Believe. You have to exercise that in accordance with your will. You take authority over that. 
that that kind of fear issue is just a tactic so that fear would control me as opposed to faith. The other issue is, is humility. Now this may be hard for some people, but humility is not crawling under some rocks in place and seeing how humble I am and doing nothing. Humility, in my understanding, is confidence properly placed. Not in myself, but in God. A humble person has all the confidence in the world in God. I can't imagine Jesus being humble, which I'm sure he was, but his confidence was not diminished one bit by that, but he did everything according to what his father told him to do. You see, pride has a tendency to say, I did it. I can do it. I can accomplish it. Humility says, I did it by the grace of God. But I did it. It's a false humility that says, I didn't do anything. That's false. But all that we accomplish, we accomplish by the grace of God. For apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But God expects us to accomplish that. And then there's a sense of boldness today. In Acts chapter 431, it says, The place where they prayed was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. What characterizes a spiritual Christian today is a true godly sense of courage and boldness. When you look at Joshua about to go into the promised land, Joshua chapter 1, four times it says, only be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. That's what marked the early church. That's what marked every successful advancement of the church to this day. Let me have you look at a passage that's rather interesting. That's in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their parts will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, have you ever looked at that? <laughs> Can you imagine putting cowardliness and, and unbelieving in the same category as abominable murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters? You see, God really doesn't look at us very kindly when we when we respond just in fear. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. I'd like to see the whole church come to grips with something here instead of cowering under, quote, demonic powers of which God intends in this administration for the church to work that out over that. Because we're far above that. We have no reason to be afraid of this thing. A lot of people are even telling me, even Talbot students at times, I'm afraid to take that class. Well, a little knowledge has a tendency to scare people, but a lot of knowledge liberates. Because if we knew the truth here, there'd be no fear whatsoever. It'd be totally gone. And typically after people have gone through the whole course, well, tell me that. Oh, I used to be scared of that stuff. I'm not afraid anymore. Wonderful. Exactly the perception that we ought to have. 
Let me exercise some cautions here, however. The authority that we're talking about is not an independent authority. Well, I'm going to go out there and take on the devil. Oh, no, I don't go where angels fear to tread. God, God calls us maybe into ministry where this may happen. I don't look to the left or the right. I preach the gospel. If I get interference, I take authority over it and get on with my task. But I don't go out on my own initiative and try and do these things. Because that would be an independent authority. All that I have, I have because of my position in Christ. And so if I'm out here walking according to the flesh, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So you have some people who are kind of arrogant in themselves, and they go, boy, I'm going to take it on. You probably get thrashed. It's like the passage in Acts chapter 19 where the seven sons of Sceva, they were going to say, boy, we're going to carry on this ministry and exercise a few demons here. Guess what happened? They got stripped of their clothes, beat up, and thrown outside. Because they looked at him and said, Jesus we know. Paul we heard of. Who are you? You know what I would say? I've had that kind of stuff thrown back at me. I'd say, child of God, that's who I am. Seated with Christ in the heavenly. Get out of here. I'm not saying that arrogantly, people, but I'm saying it confidently. I had a a large girl was sitting in my office, just hideously attacked in this area. And she rose out of her chair and she started coming at me and she was glaring, her eyes were flashing like this here. What would you do? You going to take that on in the flesh? The weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh. I looked at her and quoted out of 1 John chapter 5, I'm begotten of God, the evil one touched me not. You sit right where you're at. I'm not saying this to the girl, people. That girl really is blanked out at that time. She stopped right in her tracks, went right back to the seat. Let me tell you something as strongly as I can. The authority that we have is not increased with the volume of our voice. Shouting does not make it more effective. I had uh, a former student who brought in this girl, and it w I was talking with her, and he went into some kind of power mode, he thought it was, and he started shouting and yelling and trying to command it out. And I said, what are you doing? <laughs> Sit down. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, able to teach, patient when wrong. If perhaps God grants them repentance here, that they may come to a knowledge of the truth, having escaped the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. That's not some kind of ranting and raving and power mode that we're talking about here. We exercise the authority that God has given to us. And you can do that gently, like God is gentle. You don't have to shout or yell. It's because of your position in Christ that this is true. And really, I tell you, it works. That's a great verse to memorize, incidentally, First John 5.18. I am begotten of God, the evil one touch me not. Let me give an illustration of that. One of the first persons I ever dealt with took her about two or three weeks before she told me about the snakes. She was classified as schizophrenic, and I said, well, what are the snakes? Well, they crawl on me at night. I said, what do you do? I go running into my mother. I said, well, your mother can't help you with that. I said, but I'll tell you what you should do. You should say, out loud, in the name of Christ, I command you to leave me. Oh, her first response, I couldn't do that. I said, how come? Well, I'm not mature enough. I'm not strong enough. It's not a question of maturity. 
It's a question purely of your position in Christ. You have as much right to do that as I do. But you have to do it like I would have to do it. There's an interesting story to this one, incidentally. I was using an old slogan I'd picked up from someplace else. Well, I, I told her how to stand. I said, well, just say, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. <laughs> Never even dawned on me till later on that she, she wouldn't do that because she didn't want Satan behind her. I said, well, it's just a figure of speech. I said, we've got to be careful how we use some of these things. But I said, can you do that? What do I do now? You just say, in the name of Christ, I command you to leave me. I guess. She came back the next week. Snakes are gone. I said, why don't you share that with me a long time ago? Because I was afraid you'd get them. You, it's amazing what they hear in their own mind here. The lie that sometimes they believe in this here. I said, I'm not going to get the snakes. Now, I want you to know, every believer has that right because of your position in Christ to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But if you don't do it, he doesn't have to go. And, and call in my head and say, oh God, do something, doesn't get rid of him. Because that's my responsibility to do that, is it not? I draw near to God, he draws near to me, but I resist the devil, he flees from me. I was just sharing with a, a, a gal recently that just struggled in this particular area. And I said, you have to understand that people who are in this kind of a conflict like that don't have an awful lot of confidence at that time. Typically, there's a long history of that, that has left them really kind of afraid and scared. Well, this one gal who was brought to me by a Christian counselor who just shared an unreal story of what she was raised in, of abuse in her own home, but across the street was an older girl. She was the only girl in the block, so she was her friend, but her mother was a witch. She didn't know she was a witch. She's been in counseling now for three or four years. In an hour's time, that girl told me more than she told that counselor in three or four years. Part of the reason is, is that I knew some of the questions to ask her. In fact, the counselor told me, he said, my gosh, I didn't know that. But uh, I started to lead down a path where I said, what was this neighbor like? Well, she did things in her home. What kind of thing? Was there candles there? Yeah. Were there ever any sacrifices? Yeah. Were you required at times to take off your clothing? Yeah. Were you forced or at least asked to or made to be a participant in that with men and women? Yes. The counselor's eyes are getting about this big. But because I knew that that kind of stuff happened, she was agreeable to share that with me. Well, that neighbor moved away, but that neighbor showed up on her bed every night. That woman, in dialogue with her. Well, spent two hours together and we got rid of that. But could it come back? Yes. What would you do if it came back? You'd tell us to leave. Well, we were sharing this together. She said, I'm just tired of fighting that fight. I said, well, if you think about it for a moment here, what you're doing is, is you're, you're constantly fighting like You're saying, get away from me. So it goes away and drifts back a little bit. I said, but actually what happens is that we need to claim that first position in authority. So draw near to God. Assert your own confidence. God, you are the commander in chief here. I'm under your authority. I'm under your protection. I'm in your kingdom. Now resist the devil. Now you actually were successful to a degree over here, but the point of it is, is that you've got to have this established first. That's why you can't really understand Ephesians chapter 6 about the protection God has given us 
unless you know the position that we now occupy in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. And the order is incredibly important. I'm in God's army. I assert the fact that he's my commander. Drop his name now and then. I mean, you know, in other areas, name droppers may not be effective, but you can drop this one because at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will bow. And I'll tell you what, the evil one has to flee. But it isn't because of any inherent strength of myself. I'm strong how? In the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not my power, because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. can't be me. Do you know what Satan can do about your position in Christ? Nothing. But if he can get you to believe they're not there, you will operate on his plane, and you will have nothing but defeat. So he can try to affect your belief, but he can't do anything about your position. Nothing. That's why he says, I pray that your eyes be opened. That you would know the power that's been extended towards you who believe. Because it's your belief by which you operate out that gives you the victory. Nothing changes about your position. That's secure. We're going to look now in our next session about that protection that God has given us. That we are intended to put on on a daily, regular type of a basis. Well, let's close this time in prayer. And I'm going to pray almost like I believe that Paul would pray today, that our eyes be opened up in this area. Should we pray together? Father, we don't want to see any error here. We don't want to be out of balance or untrue, but we want to see what's truly ours. I pray, Father, for all of us that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to remove the blindness and the hardening that could possibly be there from the past. But we want to know. We want to know the power that's been extended towards us who believe. Not to use it wrongly, but to live a victorious life and to be a demonstration of your presence in our lives. That we would be careful to do all that we do, not only in the name of Christ, but to manifest your presence in the world today. And so we come before you, we choose today to crucify the flesh and all of its passions, to do away with the natural life, which is really in opposition to you, but to assert our higher life, which is in Christ, to be seated with you. What a privilege. What a calling. And we pray, Father, that as you enable us day by day to live a life victorious in Christ, that we could assert that we are truly more than conquerors in him, that we can live a life in victory and freedom. And to that end now we pray. We pray that you would help us to walk through what we need to walk through in order to make that true in our lives because it's for the freedom that you set us free that you died on that cross for. And we don't want anything less than what you purchased for us in Christ. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.